Our book, The Wisdom of Nurses, Stories of Grit from the Frontline, is available for pre-order. Thanks to all that made this possible, especially the many nurses from across North America who generously shared their stories, passion, and wisdom with us. From us, the hosts of the hit podcast, The Gritty Nurse, we discuss stories of the challenges, heartbreak, and humor of life on the front line. One of the enduring lessons of the pandemic has been the pivotal role that nursing plays in healthcare, vital work that isn't widely understood or sadly appreciated. We started the wildly popular The Gritty Nurse podcast to give voices to nurses all over the world, including more than 400,000 nurses in Canada. We have become sought-after speakers and advocates for nurses and are called on regularly by the media to talk about a wide range of issues around the profession. In our first book, definitely not our last, we take you to the front line of nursing to show the compassion, selflessness, and dedication of professionals who not only give it all for their patients, but get up to do it over and over again. Pre-order the book now at your major book retailers. It'll be available in print and audiobook format. Thank you so much. Take care and enjoy the wisdom of nurses. Hello, is this thing on? Of course it is. They can definitely hear us. Yeah, we're in our fourth season. There's no silencing us now. Welcome to the Gritty Nurse Podcast, an unfiltered discussion on health and healthcare. My name is Amy Archibald Burley. And I'm Sarah Fung, and we are your podcast hosts. Please make sure that you subscribe to our new YouTube channel where you can watch our podcast in video format. Please hit the subscribe button. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or any other podcast platform, leave us a rating and review. Okay. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Gritty Nurse Podcast. Uh, I'm Sarah. I'm Amy. And we're going to be talking about yet another hot topic today. So we're going to be talking about nursing retention. This is not a new topic. This has been something that we've been talking about for a long time. But I think this is a timely topic because uh, there's actually been some new resources developed that Amy and I were a part of. So back in, I would say earlier in 2023, we were asked to be on a forum to develop a nursing retention toolkit, which was led by the government of Canada. And of course, the wonderful Dr. Lee Chapman, who is the uh, chief nursing officer of Canada. And one so, of the most, yeah, go let ahead. Let me just jump in. And one of the 50 most influential people in Toronto. Yes, yes. She just got that uh, title and that's super exciting. So why don't we just take a pause and talk about what we feel like the state of nursing retention is right now. I mean, I think it's the biggest conversation that we need to have. I think we've had so many conversations about, you know, we have a shortage. What are we going to do in relation to that shortage? But the conversation really, I feel only has shifted within the last year and a half surrounding retention like most of it's been like we need more nurses in we need to like have better recruiting in in schools like it's always been surrounding like how do we get more nurses on the floor but like not necessarily how we keep nurses and the thing is there are various different factors of why nurses are leaving it's poor working conditions it's the fact that a lot of us feel steamrolled by our governments there's been like the fact that mental health hasn't been a focus so all of these different things have kind of really been coming to light over the past, I'd say over the past three years and probably honestly, probably from the inception of nursing. And I think that, you know, the shift has focused 
to retention as opposed to like how do we get more in this particular place we need to keep the ones that are actually willing to stay yeah and it's really it's really unfortunate because as we've been moving more into this space and talking to nurses of all different backgrounds the sad thing is i hear from nurses at all different levels from nursing student to basically ready to retire that everyone is feeling really burnt out and seriously questioning whether they want to stay in the profession and that's really sad because um, nursing students who haven't even finished nursing school are asking, what can I, like, is this the right career for me? Did I make the right choice? Are things going to get better? And so I think it's so timely that we have this conversation. And even being part of the forum, I think traditionally frontline nurses haven't been asked yeah. what they think the solution is and you think that makes sense so like this forum really included nurses such as amy and myself included not just rns but rpns um had we students. had students yep. yes we had nurses from all across canada geographically at all different levels so from frontline to education to leadership academia um i'm probably missing some yep. but public health community yeah. health mm -hmm. various different areas and i think it's just important that you know we didn't have just that administrative slice which is traditionally how things have been, right? It was, you know, you'd have administrators there. You might even have nurse uh, leaders that weren't nurses there that would make these decisions. And this document um, is what they said is it's made for nurses, created by nurses, which is, I think is hugely important. Yeah. And some of the takeaways really are important because I feel like our input was really valued. Like we went into breakout sessions and someone's literally capturing everything we're saying. They put them into different categories. And so the creation of this toolkit really encompasses a lot of different areas and there's supporting frameworks around it. So without going into too many details, though, um, we'll put this up on the screen as we're talking, but it's really just about how can we improve at all levels, right? So the four underpinning, I guess, uh, principles are about respect, transparency, anti-racism, and anti-oppression, as well as accountability. And I think this is like, we've been talking a lot about accountability. So if and when something doesn't happen, are we holding people accountable? Are we calling them out on it? Or are we letting it slide by? Yeah. And I th and again, I'm, I'm going to be critical of these documents. And I think it's important that we still are, is like, what does that look like? And I think, you know, the toolkit does kind of explain like how some of these things will be implemented. Because it, again, accountability is this weird thing in healthcare. Like we talk about like that we should have accountability, but it's, it's like, what are the measures or what are the things that are actually going to be enacted to ensure that there is accountability that, you know, let's say that we don't, we put these measures in place and things aren't being followed. What is, what does accountability look like in relation to this toolkit? So I'll be interested to see kind of, again, as this continues to roll out, what that looks like. And I think we need to stop with the pointing fingers and we need to stop saying like, this is not my job. It's not my job. Nurses <laughs> like, do that a this, lot. I just picture this in my head all the time. Like, oh, it's not me. It's not me. It's you. But like, let's just work towards a common goal. And I think being part of this forum, I think that we really did try to work towards a common goal. And I'm sure that things may change or evolve over time, but it's certainly a good starting point. Um, and one of the things that really resonated with me is just there was one topic that was about flexible and balanced ways of working. Yep. And I feel like as a, a nurse that works shifts, like your life is governed by your schedule. Like, right. Yeah. And then, you know, like I've worked all different types of schedules, but things like being able to self-schedule, having flexible work hours, does it have to be 12 hours? Right. Does it have to be this and that? Like, I think we just need to look at flexible ways. And so, um, you know, like here, what they're talking about is scheduling systems. Like we need to get with the 21st century and yep. make sure that we're using technology to do this the best way possible. Like there's a lot of different 
um, opportunities for improvement. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's so funny that you said that because like when I think about the scheduling in our hospital, like there's still someone behind a computer screen with an Excel file calling individuals. Mm-hmm. And I remember even like when we were on the unit, if someone was sick, they're like, all right, open the open the binder, start with full-time staff, go to part-time staff, then go to casual, then potentially offer double time, which I think like never happened. And I think the way that we're doing these things are super archaic and we need to start using and leveraging technologies to kind of make this way better. Yeah. And back, back in the day, we were still on paper, paper, phone calls. Like what about lots of places are probably still on paper. I know. I know. (laughs) It's just like, but the thing is, I feel like for whatever reason, healthcare is often stuck 20 years behind. And this is a whole other episode in itself but why do we still have fax machines why do we have pagers like (laughs) some people just like to hold on to things forever and i think nursing is one of those professions that does that and in the states i hear about great places that have like on-site childcare. like i think we need to work with with where people are at rather than losing them from the workforce completely it's better to have a nurse in it than not have them at all well how many nurses go from working like let's say day like let's say they have the traditional line day day night night or whatever the case may be and as soon as they have a child they're working nights only right Mm -hmm. and i know lots of people suffer doing that like it's really hard that you know let's say your spouse works days and then all of a sudden you have a child and now you're only working nights you don't see your spouse at all right you mm-hmm. barely see your children or you or you end up from various stories i've had and even myself that you know you you finish your night you wake up well you not wake up you get home and you're still mm-hmm. making breakfast getting the kids ready to go to school shipping them off to school then you're like awake for mm-hmm. well than 12 hours and then you're like you might not be able to go back to sleep and you still have to go back to work for another night shift and i think how do people have how do people think that that's a healthy way of living it's absolutely not right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and i think that you know we do it because we have to but it's certainly not good for anybody in this situation not at all and one of the other things i liked was just um, them talking about inspired leadership so really looking at developing leadership competencies because one thing that i think is really important is not everybody is cut out to be a leader and just because you've been at an organization or a job for a certain period of time does that make you the best leader does that actually give you leadership qualities or is it because this is like the next phase in your this is the next natural step up yeah I mean I think we are very archaic in the way that we like look at our look at years of experiences being like this person has this many years of they should be the next leader and it's like no I think we should be looking at you know soft skills various different competencies how this person conducts themselves working in a team working individually and I think we need to actually move away from these rigid oh this person needs five years experience this person needs 25 years experience I think those are very archaic ways to look at how do we you know, have leaders in different leadership roles. Mm -hmm. And then again, like, I I don't know, I kind of feel like we need to throw that hierarchy out where it's just like, you know, 25 years is the, is the gold standard for someone getting a role. I think, you know, we should look at the qualifications, how the person interviews, what they've demonstrated in terms of their leadership and kind of make decisions that way. I think that's Mm -hmm. actually inspired leadership and look for the people who are seeking those opportunities. There are people Mm -hmm. out there that are like, Hey, are, are things I can get involved in my unit? What are the, some of the different things I can do and build leaders? Like, I think it'd be great if, and I, I don't know, you maybe talk about your experience, but I never got the sense of, you know, mentorship or molding to move into a leadership position from other leaders. It was just like, mm-hmm. I think they had their eyes on 
certain people and that's how it went it wasn't like you know anybody could have a chance to be a leader right right there's a lot of nepotism oh yes uh, it's it's <laughs> like you have to do your time at a certain organization before they think you've earned your street cred and then you can move into a leadership position so it's very hard for me um and maybe you as well to be in a leadership position from an outside organization because people didn't know you they didn't know what my working style was like they felt i hadn't earned my stripes they thought and this is this is part of nursing too um, I hadn't worked the same number of years that they had and they felt they should be in a leadership position, even right. though I had the education and the skills, it wasn't viewed that way. And I think this is where we can talk about nurse bullying. There's no need to bully someone just because they are younger than you or have fewer ex years of experience than you. A hundred percent. And I mean, I think that almost dovetails into one of the things that I was saying about that I really liked about the nursing retention toolkit. Um, and really that was the organization organizational mental health and wellness supports i think about our experiences i think about the experiences of many others again that that heart-wrenching letter to uh, her abuser which was her employer and that nurse died by suicide i think about all of these instances where we see um people in healthcare, particularly nurses, not getting the supports that they need. Again, there are some legislative components where, you know, like uh, firefighters and police officers and various other first-line workers are captured under, you know, a, like a legal provision that says they can get, they can be diagnosed with PTSD and get the proper, you know, treatments and and, uh, and resources, but nurses aren't, don't fall under that umbrella. It was, it just boggled my mind. So this was another part of the toolkit I found that really resonated with me. Yeah, and I just want to point out, it is not healthy or normal to be crying after work no, or it's at not. work, which I hear a lot. A lot of nurses go home and cry in their cars. Like, how many times have we heard that? Yeah. That is... And I mean, I think we've, yeah. we've been there too, right? Yeah. Like, I, you, like, I mean, I think it's understandable that you have, like, let's say you have a horrible incident or whatever happened at work. I mean, I think that's normal and natural, but it, it shouldn't be like every shift you, you mm -hmm. finish working, you feel overwhelmed and drained and you're just you're at your breaking point, right? I think that's where the, the difference is. Yeah, I think that's super important. And just even thinking about things like uh, wellness supports, we talk about this all the time, like what kinds of wellness supports are there? Um, when something traumatic happens on the unit, is there a debrief? <laughs> they're in the moment or a little bit afterwards. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny that you mentioned that because I remember like getting into the organization, we would talk about debriefs or hot debriefs or cold debriefs. And it was kind of like a, like it was kind of a, it might happen and mm. most likely it won't happen. Right. And there were instances where horrible things happen and you try to pull people together or they just don't even have the time. Like they just, we don't, we don't allow adequate space and time in relation to staffing and various different other challenges that we, to support people in these instances. And I think that, you know, um, a lot of nurses I've spoken to nurses I've spoken to even recently, um, again, my, background is labor and delivery they've seen horrible things and are still not healing well from it right like mm -hmm. i think it's hard to come back when you see a maternal death it's hard when you see those types of things happening and you don't get the closure you don't get the conversations and it's just nothing yeah and they I expect you to come in yeah. and do your next shift and like everything's fine right and i think again this goes back to leadership competencies like are we developing leaders that can support this kind of thing? Are we giving them resources? No nurse should ever be told that this is something they can't talk about or there isn't time. So let's just 
sweep it under the rug and pretend like it didn't happen. Or, you know, they give them one or two shifts off and they're like, so your line starts again next week. You're going to be in, right? And it's like, holy crap. Like, can we talk about, you know, best practices for vacation or time off so we can actually support individuals in a proper way? I think, you know, again, even just circling back to the whole idea of vacation, there are nurses that have been told that they can't take vacation mm -hmm. um, based on, you know, staffing levels. And I think that's wrong. That's absolutely wrong. That Like, we need to take take breaks we have to mm -hmm. take the time that mm -hmm. we need and that letter to the abuser that we spoke of um how is that healthy to be told that you can't take vacation and that you have to work overtime yeah that's, that's abusive insane. Yeah. yeah and i think that like you know i think about the letter that i wrote to my abuser and my employer a, a couple years back and it, it it was very in the same tone where it's just like you know you ex you think that in healthcare that people who work in healthcare understand that compassion, understanding the burdens that you might, and it's like they just don't care. So again, I think even looking at this toolkit where they're talking about, you know, zero tolerance for violence, bullying and racism, moral distress and injury care. These are hugely important things that can be implemented to actually make changes. I know that hospital had nothing in place. They said that they would circle back to me, never heard a word, but it's so important. And I guess, again, this is even applicable not even just in healthcare but like any organization what are your practices for someone who comes back to work that is that was injured or had moral injury or distress or was on a mental health leave there needs to be things put in place Absolutely. And just from a logistical perspective, we need to reduce administrative burden to nurses. I feel like nurses are just a catch-all for jobs that nobody wants to do. Oh my God, yes. Yes, right? We do like, everything and we shouldn't. I have heard of nurses who have to, in long-term care, they have to unclog toilets, they have to do plumbing work, they have to install devices, like everything just falls to nurses. I remember on one of the units I used to work on, it became a locked unit. And of course there's someone during the day, but who is responsible on off hours to open and close that door and make sure that the right people come in. It was always the nurses. And I think like we're almost kind of guilty from some of these things as well. Like I think what tends to happen in nursing and we always want to help is we take on these extra tasks and then we continue to do our work and we're like so efficient that the leadership's like, Hey, well, you know, they're able to do this extra thing. We'll just, they just keep piling on. We just, okay, fine. It's too much, but we're going to do it. And we, we make all these workarounds, but it's mm -hmm. detrimental to ourselves. Like we need to think about like, here's our scope of practice. This is what we should be doing for our scope. We shouldn't really be going out, and over and above and I think you know mm -hmm. as much as we want to help sometimes we have to help ourselves by making sure that we're doing the job that we're supposed to be doing and I don't think it's cleaning toilets no and just think about scope of practice like is this the best use of your time to be making x number of dollars to do something that someone else could do that's not a nurse I really don't think so and by doing it by saying like oh it's not that bad or I got it we're actually hurting ourselves and our co-workers yeah we do this all the time and, and you know and the <laughs> the conversation will be, well, I guess we don't need a work clerk to open the door because it seems to we work well at nights. To, we don't need someone to answer the phone. The nurses will get the phones. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think, again, in terms of like the reduced administrative burden, the other thing that really resonated with me was the safe staffing practices. I think that, I think back to um, many times I would come into my shift, I'd go to the board and you saw those circles, right? And you know the circles meant you had holes on your shift. And if I saw one or two, I was like, phew, okay, like 
we can manage, we're understaffed, but you know, we could figure it out. But there was times I'd go in and there are four circles, there's, there are five circles. And I'm just like, how are we going to manage? And those were some of the worst shifts I could ever imagine because the business of healthcare doesn't stop. Like at the end of the day, people still are sick. They, there's no schedule <laughs> in terms of how they're going to be sick and when, and you just have to figure it out. And I think those were the shifts that, um, you know, maybe a medication was missed. Maybe someone was sad in pain for a much longer time than they needed to. I think that's where you see that moral distress of a nurse or, you know, in healthcare because they feel that they're not being able to give care to the standard of care that they should be. Absolutely. Was there anything else that kind of jumped out at you? Um, those were the main ones. Like I think, of course, there's still like clinical governance and, and infrastructure, professional development and mentorship. Um, like those, the, I think all of the various different things from the toolkit are hugely important, but those were the main ones where I'm like, yeah, mm -hmm. these are the areas that I think if we can improve some of these places, you can keep nurses working in these areas, but it's like, it'll be super critical to see how these are implemented and how this actually, you know, transforms the way that we deliver care. And, and I hope that there will be a measure, right? So mm -hmm. we, I don't know, but I hope that there is a baseline. We know what we're starting with. We know how many nurses there are currently in the workforce, how many are coming in, how many have already left. And then see, after the implementation of the toolkit, has there been nursing retention? That's the only way to find out if these things worked. And if they didn't, we have to tweak, right? We have to mm -hmm. go back in, to the drawing board to say, I love what you're saying, Amy, about pre and post intervention data, <laughs> yeah. because we need to know if we're making a change and if it's effective. Right. And I think that if anyone is overwhelmed by the toolkit, honestly, pick one area and just get started. Don't be overwhelmed by all of these suggestions. No one's saying that any of this has to be done overnight. We know it's a long process, but it really takes you know, taking that first step and showing the nurses that you care and that you want to make their lives better. Yeah. And, and maybe before we end this conversation, we can think about like, how is this applicable to, you know, folks that are not in healthcare? Because again, like, I don't want anybody mm -hmm. to sit there and be like, okay, this, this doesn't impact me. Of course, let me tell you, nursing shortage will impact you. Okay. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's so important that, you know, folks out there understand that we have a problem. We, we are in a crisis type of situation. Um, Things are, I think, getting better. But again, we're not out of the dark yet. And again, we need to keep nurses staying in the profession. I think I saw a meme on Instagram and it was like, nurse spent four years. Here's like, they kind of show her progression of, you know, her doing her bachelor's degree, working through graduating. And then she was a flight attendant at the end of it. Wow. So like, you know, you if you work four years and you dedicate your time, your expertise to being in nurse nursing, um, it's damaging to lose someone who's highly trained mm -hmm. because nurses aren't respected, nurses aren't heard, nurses aren't listened to. The work is traumatic. We don't have the supports we need, but we're seeing that happen, right? So I think, yeah. you know, it's important that the public understands that we, we want to keep nurses in nursing and they can lift their voices too by saying, okay, let me learn about the retention toolkit mm -hmm. how can i how can i share my voice you know you can send the re retention toolkit to members of your, your friends and your families you can talk about it you can ask a nurse that you might be working with on the unit about you know how are we going to keep great nurses like you staying in th this environment i think there's 
always a role that the public has to play and and Mm -hmm. even nursing retention as well. Yeah. And I want to keep encouraging nurses to get into the profession. Like we got to tackle this from all levels. So I think the more we talk about it, the more people are aware of it. Hopefully someone out there listening is in a position to make positive changes. And that's what we really need to see. Yeah. And even just more nurses being involved. I think that, you know, yes, it was one day, two days, and then it was various different sessions afterwards to kind of continue to refine the toolkit. I believe from my understanding, this is a living document. It's going to continue to mm-hmm. be iterative and have like changes and tweaks to it. But how can you as a nurse or another healthcare professional get involved? And I think that, you know, it's important that you, we are aware of what's happening. And, you know, I think, I think Dr. Lee Chapman is an excellent individual to reach out to. You can reach out to her and you can reach it through email or various different channels and talk about how you can get involved with the work that's happening in Canada in relation to keeping and retaining nurses. And then again, you know, our folks all across the world, U.S. nurses, nurses internationally, um, this is not just a Canadian problem. This mm-hmm. is an international problem. And again, we need to look to each other to start learning. And I think we're, we've learned tons from the states i'm like what california has staffing ratios oh that's another <laughs> like, topic holy we, gotta, crow. we gotta do an episode on we that have to, we have to we don't have to reinvent the wheel but we need to share the knowledge from other places that are doing really great things learn from them and adapt them here as well definitely thank you california thank you thanks for <laughs> listening if you have a question for us feel free to reach out on social media we will pass along any questions to dr lee chapman or try to answer them ourselves absolutely take care everyone